Hey, there we go. All right. Cool. In the first service, it was my fault. I had it muted. I'm not going to name any names in the second service. <laughs> Actually, I can't put Jeff under the bus because he's like amazing at what he does. Uh, yes. All of the sound, everybody back there. Yeah, the live stream and the, the slides and the audio and the video and all the visual and everything. It doesn't happen by accident and it certainly doesn't do it on its own. So thank you guys for all you do each and every week and everybody else who serves in that capacity. Uh, this morning, I'm actually going to take you backwards a little bit from where we were last week. If you remember, I talked about Daniel and some of his friends that came over from Jerusalem to Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar's uh, besieging of Jerusalem. And we talked a lot about how Daniel would not resolve, that he stood firm on his commitments, that he stayed true to God's commands, and that he did not defile himself with the king's food, the king's drink, and that he ultimately just resolved, hey, I'm not going to compromise. Doesn't matter what happens, I'm not going to compromise. And we're going to pick back up on this topic today about compromise, but I realized last week I did a whole sermon on not compromising and didn't tell you what compromise was. As if I, I just assumed that maybe you knew. But you know the thing about assuming. I won't finish that saying. Uh, so this morning we're going to talk about the enemy of decision making, which is compromise. Uh, so the question that I have for you is, what is compromise? So I'm going to present a working definition to you this morning. And then later we're going to back that up or maybe clarify it even more with a more biblical definition. So what is our, uh, compromise? Sarcastic, uh, let's see, <laughs> I can't even read my notes right. To compromise is to make concessions or accommodations for someone who does not agree with a certain set of standards or rules. Not always a bad thing. For example, anybody in here married? Compromise is not a bad thing, right? It, it's not always right to try to get your way or to have your opinion heard and, and followed through on. I'm learning that. Can I get an amen from Abby over there? <laughs> <laughs> I think we're all learning, but in marriage especially, it, sometimes it's better to keep the peace than trying to get your way. Uh, sometimes it is a bad thing, especially when it comes to God's commands, when it comes to, to the truth, the difference between right and wrong. Um, if we get it to a point where we're compromising God's standards, we must check ourselves, right? Um, so how would you compromise in these situations? Some, these are going to be up on the screen. We're going to work from kind of an easier choice down to some harder choices. Number one. You're going out to eat with your friends, and some want pizza and some want burgers. All right, so maybe you're not a pizza person. Maybe you don't like the burger restaurant. I don't know what it is, but ultimately, with you and your friend group, you're going to decide amongst yourselves, oh, I'll give a little here, I'll take a little here, I really want this, but it's okay if I don't have this. So you compromise. You're right? All right, we eat pizza this time, next time we get burgers, or next time we eat salads, because we don't eat that unhealthy junk, right? <laughs> so there's... This, this ongoing cycle of compromise in our lives with just very simple decisions such as what to eat and where to eat. Number two, your family is trying to decide where to spend spring break. You want to go to Daytona Beach, but others in your family want to go to Universal Studios in Orlando. And if you're like me, you look at this and you're like, well, that's an easy one. We're not going to either one because I don't have enough money for either one of those. <laughs> so to me, it's not even a compromise. It's just a um, no and no. What's the next option? But maybe for you or on a family vacation, you're like, hey, let's go to the mountains or let's go to the beach or wherever in between. And some of your family members think, oh, well, 
I'd rather go to the mountains because it's cooler there. Uh, you feel closer to God when you're on top of the mountains. <laughs> or I'd rather go to the beach because it's warm there. I can get a good tan. Uh, I don't know. Whatever your preferences are. But ultimately, you might compromise a little bit here and there. You might bend a little here, break a little bit there in order to do what's best for the whole group. Right? All right, number three. You use cash to pay for your groceries at HEB, which nobody uses cash anymore. But for the sake of the illustration, here we go. Your total purchase is under $20, so you hand the cashier a $20 bill. The cashier thinks you gave a $100 bill and gives you the appropriate change. Do you keep the extra change or tell the truth and make it right? Getting a little more serious now, right? Do you compromise or do you not? Lastly, you're currently married. A coworker of the opposite sex asked if you want to go to his or her place for dinner and a movie this coming Friday. Once again, a little more serious there. But these are not decisions that we're uh, unlikely to encounter. These are things that we face each and every day throughout our lives. And we have to decide, based on all the factors present, hey, is this a good choice? Is this a bad choice? Uh, Is this an area to compromise, such as pizza and burgers? Or is this not an area to compromise, such as the truth, right and wrong, integrity? I think you guys get the point. Abraham Lincoln once said this, Persuade your neighbors to compromise whenever you can. Spoken like a true politician, right? Uh, (laughs) We don't always need to compromise, but sometimes it is okay to do so. Some examples of compromises throughout history, some you may be uh, aware of and privy to. The Magna Carta in 1215, the Paris Peace Treaty of 1783, the Missouri Compromise of 1820, the Treaty of Versailles in 1919, and the Israeli-Palestinian Roadmap to Peace in 2002. These are just a few. Certainly this list is not comprehensive. Uh, I'm sure you can think of others. But ultimately in all of these compromises or agreements or treaties or pacts, whatever you want to call them, there are two sides or maybe more than two sides who are all trying to agree, hey, let's not fight or let's pave a road to peace, or let's try to make this thing better, or or get away from doing this thing. Of course, there are millions of issues that people try to solve each and every day, from your own personal lives up to the governments and world powers that be. They're always continually trying to bend a little here, break a little here, maybe enforce a little more there, and, and not give in so much here in order to compromise. All right. So Jane Wells says it like this. Learn the wisdom of compromise, for it's better to bend a little than to break. So how about you? In your own heart, in your own mind, would you say that compromise is a good thing, a bad thing, or it depends? That's for you to answer for yourself. And often it can be a good thing. And almost always is a good thing, unless it compromises God's standard of truth, God's standard of right and wrong, His commands, and even when you compromise in those areas, it could be sinful. It could be an act of evil. So in a way, talking about our friend from last week, Daniel, I didn't ever think of this, but I was reading some different notes and commentaries on, on the book of Daniel and this, these passages in particular. Uh, Daniel actually compromised so that he wouldn't compromise. <laughs> Do you all remember the, the compromise he put forth? Okay, we don't want to eat your food, so if you'll give us this food... Then, at the end of ten days, measure us, judge us, look at us, and see how we're doing. And if we're not doing well, then we'll eat your food and drink your drink. But if so, if we're doing well, then we'll just continue to eat vegetables and water like we requested. 
Of course, the, the chief official agrees. At the end of 10 days, they're found healthier and fatter than all the other youths in the kingdom. They're also found wiser and more learned than all the other wise men in the kingdom of Babylon. So Daniel, in effect, said, I resolve. I will not compromise. I am not going to go against God's standards. I do not want to defile my body. But in order to get to the point where he wouldn't be killed, he offered a compromise. Hey, all right, I'll give in a little bit here. I'll still eat something. I'll still drink something, but just not this. Can we maybe bargain for this? And if so, at the end of 10 days, we'll see how it goes. If if I'm not looking good, if we're not looking good, we'll eat and drink whatever you want us to do. So I kind of thought it was funny that Daniel compromised so that he wouldn't compromise. He used the good side so that he wouldn't face the bad side. Um, So that's what we're going to look at today, the bad side of compromise, the enemy of decision-making. So point number one out out of two main points today, what is the bad side of compromise. Unfortunately, when we read through Scripture, we don't see a lot about pizza and hamburgers and vacations, right? The, the Word of God doesn't speak specifically to those items. Like, oh, well, when it comes to pizza and burgers, thou shalt not choose burgers. Thou shalt choose pizza. We don't see that. All right, so thankfully God gives us wisdom and discernment to make our own decisions and, and hopefully have approached those decisions with wisdom and to be able to make the right ones. But the Bible does talk about compromise. does talk about approaching a situation where there's a right decision and a wrong decision, a good path, a bad path, where you could compromise integrity, compromise God's commands, compromise God's truth. So for the remainder of our time today, we're going to focus on our biblical definition of compromise, which is this. Decisions based on setting aside the objective truth of God's word and basing them on subjective evidence. So for this definition, we could say compromise equals disobedience. Caving into world pressure, not standing up for what is right. This will be the type of compromise we discuss from here on out. Anybody ever heard of a woman named Margaret Thatcher? Yeah, some of you have, or some of you aren't listening. I'm just kidding. She said this, If you just set out to be liked, you would be prepared to compromise on anything at any time, and you would achieve nothing. So this, I feel like she's talking more about the morality side of compromising, the integrity side of compromising, and also that we will go through tough times. We'll go through hard times, and we will persevere through difficult times, and that's what makes us stronger. If we never did anything hard, if we just kind of coasted through life and never uh, really faced tough decisions, then, yeah, we'd probably achieve nothing and we'd please everybody, or at least try to. But we all know that that's not possible. So why even try, right? Let's go ahead and get that out of the way first. Um, so objective truth, what is it? That's the first part of our definition is that biblical compromise uh, is based on setting aside objective truth of God's Word. Without going into a lengthy discussion, either theologically or philosophically, about objective truth, I just want to give you a few points to keep in your mind and to keep at the forefront of your memory here this morning. Uh, it's based on the established standard of right and wrong. Well, who establishes that standard? The only one who knows right and wrong perfectly and completely and who is the perfection of right and truth. God. God establishes that standard. It's something we call it objective morality or objective truth. It's truth when you can trust the source. How many sources of news do we have these days? 
millions, all right, from social media to news on TV to friend to friend to secondary and tertiary information that's spread. We have millions and millions of ways to see news, to hear news, to gather information. But how often do we look at the source and say, oh, yeah, I can trust that. Facebook's always right. Instagram, always. CNN, they always tell the truth. And I'm not just picking on anybody. Like all of them, you know, don't tell exactly what's going on for the most part. Maybe there are some out there. Um, So when it comes to us, is there any source that we can trust that when we receive the information from it, we know this is truth? Well, I want to posit one this morning. How about Jesus? Jesus himself. He is the basis for absolute truth. He's the embodiment of absolute truth. And he's a source we can certainly trust. There are a couple of passages I want to reference in regard to Jesus this morning, which this is one out of two out of millions, I'm sure. John 1.17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And then further along in John's gospel, Jesus says, John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Subjective truth is found primarily in the person of Jesus, especially in the Bible, which is the Word of God, and more, um, more highly, I guess you could say, in God himself, which Jesus, we know, is the embodiment of God. So what is subjective evidence? If that's what objective truth is, what's the alternative, the subjective evidence? These are based on the changing factors of everyday life. Some examples will include, but aren't limited to, our feelings, our desires, our opinions, our fears, and our circumstances. And that's just to name a few. I'm sure that you can think of many other subjective evidences. Uh, so I'm going to read a passage here out of Second Timothy chapter 4 for just a moment that may help us see how people make decisions based on subjectivity. So let's read that together. This is Paul speaking to his protege, his son in the faith, Timothy, who's seeking to lead a church. He's a pretty young guy, so he's learning a lot. And Paul writes to him and says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate teachers to suit their own passions. They will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. I've done a good amount of study on this verse over the years, and what I love about the beginning of it, for the time is coming, is it has this connotation in the Greek that means something like this. For the time is coming and is already here. Like, you don't have to keep looking for it to happen. It's happening. And even in Timothy's current time, when Paul wrote this letter, it was already happening. We saw Paul's dealings with the with all of these false teachers and all these false beliefs and the, the Judaizers and, and all of these people who were just going against God's word that were wandering off into these other truths and myths. And if you look throughout church history, you're like, why do all these councils exist? Why did they have the Jerusalem council, the council at Ephesus? All, all these councils, well, because people were believing and saying the wrong things and they had to fix it, right? So this isn't a new thing to us. When we read this, this isn't some kind of prophecy. This is something that's already happening. And I know you guys know that. And um, at this time, these kind of teachings would creep into the church. They would definitely exist in the culture. And it's happening now. There are, there are people preaching from pulpits saying things that don't agree with God's Word. There are teachings out there that people call themselves Christians believe, but it's not biblical. 
It's certainly not like Christ. I'm like, how can you call yourself a Christian and not act like Christ? Well, I don't do that all the time, but that's because I know that I need forgiveness. I know that I'm a sinner. But if, if I act out of my own volition and I think I'm doing right, but God's word says differently, I need to be checked. <laughs> all right. So there is a difference there. Um, so these people, unfortunately, that Timothy was pastoring and ministering to in his church and in the area were beginning to say, I, you know, this isn't good enough for me anymore. It's not really my jive. It's not really my thing. In fact, have you heard what this teacher's teaching? Oh, man, this, just be happy. Whatever you do, it, it makes you happy. Oh, what about this teacher over here? Oh, live, live your truth. It, whatever you think is right and best, just that's the way you should live. It doesn't matter if it comes in conflict with everybody else in your life or whatever they say. And certainly there's no objective truth out there that, to correct you. So, yeah, just live your own truth. And even more so... These people would come up with their own ideas and thoughts and beliefs and opinions and say, hey, can you, can you teach me more about this? The itching years, they accumulated themselves for themselves teachers that would suit their passions, that would suit their beliefs. That seems a little backwards to me. All right? There's a method when studying a scripture called eisegesis, which means you take your own thoughts and opinions and belief and you fuse it into scripture and you kind of make it fit the way you think. And the way you want it to be. That is not a correct way of studying scripture. That is not good interpretation. We use exegesis. You might have heard exegetical method. Where you start with scripture and you draw the meaning out of, ex, out of scripture. This is the standard. This is the sound doctrine. This is the truth. And if any time we try to infuse something into it, like John said, nothing should be added or taken away from this. We better be careful. Always drawing from the living well, never trying to add to it or stir the waters in a sense. So what might be some dangers of subjective evidence when it comes to making decisions? I want to talk about a man named John Fisher who wrote about, who wrote for CCM magazine. And this is what he said, talking about worldly compromise. He said, it's so hard to find. It's not an issue that you easily identify or fight or picket. It's slippery. It's elusive. It conceals itself in the highest places and wraps its evil tentacles around the most bedrock truth. It disguises itself with much good intention, and when uncovered, it excuses itself repeatedly with helpless cries of fatalism. Compromise is primarily a heart issue, and this is what makes it so hard to find. How do you examine the heart? Well, you know... And I know that there's only two who know your heart. You, you each individually know your own heart, your motivation, your intentions for making the decisions that you make. And two, God knows. So how do you examine the heart? You examine your own heart. Because we know God will examine it, both now and on Judgment Day. And the examination, sometimes like a a physical or, or an examination in a doctor's office or wherever it might be, Sometimes you get answers you don't want. Sometimes you examine and you're like, ooh, that's not in line with God's word. And so that doesn't mean you just put yourself down and feel guilty and you don't take any action at all. It means you say, how do I line up my heart with God's word? It's obviously shown me an error in my ways. So how do I align my heart to God's word? 
That's what it means to examine your heart. It's not so you'll feel bad or that people will judge you or, or that you'll just go on living life like, oh man, I'm such a bad person. It's so that you can correct it, so that you can get better, so that you can become more like Christ. So I want us to look now at a few biblical examples uh, because a lot of worldly examples are out there, but there are plenty of biblical examples too on both sides of the compromise aisle. So we're going to look at first at a couple of cases very briefly, and then the third one we're going to cover in a lot more detail. So case number one, we're talking about Cain and Abel. And this is found in Genesis 4, 1 through 8. Many of you, I'm sure, know the story of Cain and Abel. God had set forth commands and said, this is what I desire out of your offering. Very simple, very plain. Kind of like he told Cain and Abel's parents. Just don't eat from that tree. Very simple, very plain. We know how that story ended. So Cain, Cain, of course, brings the worst of his flock, the the leftovers of his produce. He still brings an offering, but it's not what the Lord required. And so the Lord looked poorly on that offering. Now Abel, he was the righteous one. He was the one who understood God's commands and said, hey, I'm going to follow this. I'm going to do what God says. And so he brought the best of what he had. He brought the first fruits of what he had and offered them to God. And God said, these are good. These are worthy. These are a good sacrifice, a good offering from you. And so what happened? With obedience comes blessing. We saw that last week. With disobedience comes punishment. So Cain was punished. Abel was blessed. Cain got upset. Some of those subjective factors start rolling inside of him. Maybe some feelings. Maybe some fears. Maybe he had his own opinion about what he thought was right. Are wrong. Maybe for him the circumstances were just too much. And in a fit of rage and anger, maybe even some jealousy, we get one verse of scripture related to this entire act that he's about to do. He picks up a rock, he rose up against his brother Abel, and killed him, struck him down. Case number one. Now, case number two, we're going to talk about David and Bathsheba. Before we get there, there's some questions that I want to ask. Sorry, I have to make you go back, Danielle. Um, some questions to ask related to each one of these passages. And number one, was Cain given biblical truth? Yeah, he definitely knew what was right and what was wrong in that situation. Did he understand the consequences? Yeah, he understood. And lastly, what did he base his decision on? Was it subjective evidence or objective truth? Well, we certainly see that he did not complete a good action he did not follow what the Lord had for him. He was not very happy. So I think subjective evidence is where he falls. All right, now to case number two, David and Bathsheba. And we find this in 2 Samuel 11, 1 through 5. Once again, we won't read that for time's sake. But just to recap the story, David's already in a place where he shouldn't be. He's up on his palace when he should be out fighting with all the other kings that were going to war at that time. Instead, he sent his best uh, official and his army and sent them off to war. So he's hanging out at his palace, I guess like kings do. <laughs> he's walking around outside and he's, he looks down at all these rooftops down there and he sees one woman bathing, Bathsheba, and he asks his servants, hey, man, she's beautiful. Who, who is that? Well, that's the daughter of Elion. That's Uriah the Hittite's wife. And when I read that, I immediately think they're trying to say, She's kind of taken, <laughs> right? Like she has her own family. She has her identity in those people. But David says, well, why don't you bring her to me? So they do, because you don't deny the king's commands. You don't deny the request of the king. 
And so they bring Bathsheba there. We know how the story unfolds. Bathsheba gets pregnant. She conceives. And David, from then on out, tries to hide it. He lies. He tries to, to cover up the mistakes he made. He eventually goes as far as committing murder for, for Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And we know that, that he paid the price for the decisions that he made. But when it comes to this situation, to this case, did David know biblical truth? Yeah. In fact, a lot of the biblical truth contained in here was written by David. So you think he would know what God would say on this matter. Did he understand the consequences? Yes, I do believe he did. And lastly, what did he base his decision on? Subjective evidence or objective truth? Once again, feelings, desires, emotions, subjective evidence. So conclusion to these first two cases. Each of these people compromised their integrity and God's commands. They caved in and were punished for their disobedience. Let's look at case number three. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And this is going to be in Daniel chapter 3 beginning in verse 8. And we will read that together. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to Daniel 3 or the, the passage will be up on the screen. Daniel 3, beginning in verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. The Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Not the first time they've stood before the king. You remember after their little trial of, of food nourishment? They stood before Nebuchadnezzar. So this is not an unknown thing for them. Verse 14, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. In other words, we've already made up our minds. We're not talking about this. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Did they know biblical truth? Yes, they did. Did they understand the consequences? I think we know without a doubt they understood what it meant to stand on their integrity and to not compromise. What did they base their decision on? Subjective evidence? Objective truth? Objective truth. That's right. So conclusion to this third case. These three young men refused to compromise. They could have tried to please everyone. They could have just fake, faked the bow and been like, oh, God, this isn't for real, but we don't want to die. They could have done that before this golden statue. They, they could have worshipped the gods of Nebuchadnezzar and just been like, oh, God, we don't really mean it. <laughs> I, I don't know, but the, maybe they would have been lying about their beliefs. 
It would have certainly been uh, pretending to worship these things. But they knew that compromise is not worth it. They knew that their lives weren't even worth as much as compromising. That, that they would rather give their lives than to refuse God's word, God's truth. I want us to look again at verses 17 and 18. I just want you to notice their determination here. That they weren't going to be swayed at all. If this be so, they said, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They made their decision and they stuck with it. It reminds me of Daniel. He made his decision and he stuck with it. So what happened next for these young men? I want to go ahead and read the rest of this passage just to give us a little more context and then we'll continue on with what we have to talk about this morning. So continuing Daniel 3 verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. He was already in a furious rage. Now he's filled with fury even more. Um, An expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments. When I read that, I think, oh yeah, real flammable things. (laughs) right? And they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In other words, this isn't a magic show. This isn't an illusion when these three men are thrown in and we know that they don't burn. This was a hot furnace. <laughs> all right? Even the guys that got close enough, barely close enough to throw these guys in, they were all killed. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. He rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. And he answered and said, But I see four men, unbound, walking in the midst of the fire. They are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out. And come here. Here they stand before the king again. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads, not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. And no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon." There are two results, two things that happened next after they refused to compromise. After they told the king, even to his face, we're not worshiping your gods. We're not bowing down to your idol. The Lord saved them from death. Praise the Lord. Secondly, the entire country was affected. Did you notice how many people were there to watch that? Like all the leaders in all of Babylon saw it. 
King Nebuchadnezzar brought them before him and said, made this decree. If anyone does anything against the Most High God, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're going to be torn limb from limb because he's kind of a big deal, right? Even to Nebuchadnezzar. The entire country was affected because they refused to compromise. There was a family that that moved out west and bought a ranch and decided to raise cattle. The family was all excited and each had an idea of what to name the ranch. The dad liked Bar J for his initial. The mom thought Susie Q was cute. His kids couldn't decide between Flying W and Lazy Y. He told a friend that they decided to compromise. And they called it the Bar J, Susie Q, Flying W, Lazy Y Ranch. The friend asked him where all the cattle were. And he said, none survived the branding. (laughs) I got a few laughs on that one. Uh, And I know that's kind of a joke, a a funny way to think about compromise. Uh, But a question that I want to ask you this morning, because sometimes compromise isn't a good idea. I, I did present an okay or good side of compromise, but sometimes it isn't a good idea. Am I spiritually compromising? Ask yourself, am I spiritually compromising? When it, when it involves God's objective truth, compromising can often be sinful. It's certainly a really, really slippery slope. So I want to give you some simple tips this morning on how to avoid compromising. Number one, when making a choice, we make thousands of them every day, closely watch your feelings. You might hear yourself say something like, well, I just feel like... Closely watch your desires. Well, well, I want is closely watch your opinions. Well, I think that your fears, closely watch those. I, I'm just afraid of, or I'm really fearful that. And closely watch your circumstances. You might find yourself saying, well, in this particular case, as opposed to, well, this particular situation Last time I checked, God's Word is true for all things at all times. Um, so there's, there's no one situation that's okay here that God says it's not okay. We must remember faith and facts over fears and feelings. That's how I try to remember objective versus subjective. Faith and facts. What is true? What is known? What does my faith say? Versus how do I feel and what am I fearful of? Number two, a uh, simple tip to avoid compromising. Read the Bible. This is the best way to learn objective truth and to continually learn objective truth. Number three, surround yourself with people who encourage you to refuse to compromise and do what is right. A long sentence for the word accountability. Find someone that will pour into you, that you can pour into as well, mutually. Uh, confess sins to one another. Talk about life together and try to help each other out. Right, find someone that you can kind of live life with do the Christian walk with. Number four, pray for guidance in each and every situation. So to sum it up real quick, watch your subjective evidences, pray, read the Bible, get accountability. Those things will go a long way in helping you not to compromise. So getting a little more personal, which one of these sounds like you? I compromise often, I try not to compromise God's commands, or I'm too hard-headed to compromise. I think Daniel and his buddies would fall in that last category. They had just made up their mind and they stuck with it no matter what. Uh, so where do you, where do you fall? In your own heart, in your own mind? 
Just answer that question for yourself. And which of these subjective evidences do you have a hard time controlling? Maybe it's feelings, maybe it's desires, or or opinions, or fears, or circumstances. Maybe it's another subjective evidence that I didn't mention this morning. Is there an area of compromise that you repeatedly struggle with? Kind of your thorn in the flesh. Like, man, every time this comes up, I just give in. I compromise. I know what God's Word says about it. I know what He wants me to do with this situation. But I keep kind of falling into it. If you can name one or maybe a couple of those things in your life where you just continually, repeatedly compromise, what's one thing that you can do to begin to overcome that area? Because you don't want to stay stuck there. If you know there's, there's an issue or a problem, that's why you examine your heart, right? You don't want to stay stuck. Well, I guess I'll just live with this, right? Well, God wants you to be more. He offers healing. He offers forgiveness. There is a path forward. What is one thing you can do to begin to overcome that area? Maybe it's pray. Maybe it's read the Bible. Maybe it's find that accountability. Something I always show my students uh, with any application-based response to a passage or a teaching, three questions. What are you going to do? When are you going to do it? And is there someone who can help hold you accountable? If you approach these areas in your life where you may be compromising, even repeatedly, and you ask these three questions about how to take steps to get better, to move forward, to be more like Christ in that area and all areas, hey, what am I going to do about this? Well, I I just need to learn more and read the Bible more and find out what God has to say about it. I, I really just need to be a more diligent prayer warrior. I need to find someone who can help hold me accountable, who'll send me texts and, and talk face to face and really help me through this issue. Well, that's the what. Then there's the when. When are you going to do it? And like I tell the students and as I'm going to communicate to you this morning, I would suggest now. I would suggest as soon as possible. Right now, this evening, this week, commit to saying, hey, I know what I need to do. I'm j- I'm just going to do it. I'm going to text that friend and say, hey, can you be my accountability partner? I'm just going to dig into the Word. I'm going to pray. Lastly, is there someone who can help hold you accountable? Those will go a long way in helping you overcome these areas of compromise or, or repeated sin in your lives and also help you follow God's will much, much better. So I'd encourage you to think about those as we close this morning. Uh, and we will transition to our time observing the Lord's Supper today. So I'll ask Sarah to come up as I pray. And then um, if our deacons could go ahead and come forward, do we have enough to pass out? Yeah, y'all go ahead and come forward as I pray. And then we'll uh, observe the Lord's Supper once, once I'm finished praying. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, thank you so much for the morning. Thank you for your word. <clears throat> and oftentimes it does tell us exactly how bad we are but it doesn't leave us there. Uh, Thank you so much for the grace and the kindness that you've bestowed upon us and for the salvation that you offer through Christ. And may we not be negligent about these things that we're dealing with, these areas of compromise. Um, But God, we know that you just want to help us get better. You just want to help fix us and make us more like your son, Jesus Christ. So I pray that as we notice these areas, as, as we become aware of areas where we tend to compromise. Uh, Father, may we turn to you. May we turn to your word, seek your face in prayer, find accountability to help us manage this and overcome it. We know we can't do it on our own. We need the strength of your spirit. And we just need you. I pray God now as we remember 
through observing the Lord's Supper. God, that we'll just soften our hearts, that we'll seek to hear what it is you have for us. Maybe this is a time where we reflect on exactly um, what areas we need to work on. May we remember the body that was broken, the blood that was spilled, so that we would have a chance at forgiveness, that we could know without a doubt, have full assurance of salvation, knowing that we live for you now and we will live with you forevermore one day in heaven. May we remember what you did this morning and remember well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.